This time is a particularly powerful time, I believe. Uh, our time right now, we have kind of a um, coming together of a few different uh, events, forces, uh, times of the year. We have the beginning of the year, which for many of us is connected with setting intentions, getting clearer about how our lives. That we also have the uh, time of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, birthday, which is on Sunday, January 15th. And then we also have uh, this continuing um, set of challenges, and some, some of them may become you know, significantly more powerful and, and difficult uh, with the changing of the political guard. So it's a very, uh, I think it's a very uh, special time. It's a very challenging time. And I thought that in the context of this uh, um, <coughs> challenging time that promises to get more challenging, I wanted to address the, um, particularly the connection between Buddhist-based practice and the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King with relationship to the needs of our times and the challenges of our times. It was, it was fun to be composing and uh, working on this talk totally in the dark some yesterday. <laughs> How many of you had a uh, power failure? Yeah, many of us, yeah. So, so in many ways, this talk comes out of the dark. <laughs> so anyway, again, to, to say what many of us are uh, quite conscious of, that this is a time when there are a lot of divisions and conflicts in the society. It's a time when in many places there are manifestations of hatred, lack of empathy, lack of compassion, different expressions of, of greed. Uh, you know, the proverbial three poisons that we address in Buddhist practice of greed, hatred, and delusion have strong footing in many, many ways. And the question is how to work with this, how to work with these uh, forces in ourselves, in our communities, uh, in the larger society. How do we, how do we respond? And I'm, I want to suggest something that may be very much be there for all of us to reflect on the fact that the resources that we really receive from the life and work of Dr. King are very significant for our times. They remain significant. Uh, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who, how many of you know of his work in life? Some of you. He was a rabbi who was an immigrant from uh, Nazi Germany who uh, walked with Dr. King in Selma and other places. He said that the future of America depends on the American response to the legacy of Dr. King. 
how do we respond to what he was offering, what he offered, where he was going, and so forth. And a number of different people think of him as perhaps the major moral and spiritual figure in our whole history of this country. I think certainly the case can be made for that. And so I want to explore how is that legacy and the resources linked with his life connected to and relevant for Dharma practice, for Buddhist-based practice? How do, we, how, do we, um, how do we make that connection? And I want to do this really in two mornings. Uh, today I want to talk particularly about the, really the common vision of our core practices with what we find in the life and work of Dr. King, bringing it, bringing um, a sense, uh, beginning to have a sense of how that, how the core principles are brought into the social world. And then next week, I want to focus a little bit more on how uh, how nonviolence works in his understanding, and how, in particular in his vision, it could actually be a powerful force spiritually grounded to transform core institutions. So two parts. Today, a little bit more on the core principles and the inner practices, and next week, a little bit more on the social application. But I think there's some way that the integration of Buddhist practice, and I would say what we can call Kingian nonviolence, is uh, offering a model that's particularly relevant for our times. That the, the resources of mindfulness, of loving kindness, coupled with their uh, application in uh, communities, in relationships, and the larger world, is a very powerful model. It's a model of connecting inner and outer work. It's a vision, really, of bringing awareness, kindness, and love to every part of our lives. And so it's a, very, it's a very powerful vision. I tend to think that it's a vision that's very much uh, uh, necessary to offer a new model of how we act in the world, how we act with conflicts, with difficulties, that um, we have very much the kind of a, a kind of activist model, which I've sometimes talked about, which I think is reaching its limits. I think it's reaching its limits with the current period, which is, tends to be more oppositional, tends to have aspects of I'm right, you're wrong, not, not a quality of empathy for the opponents, more uh, confrontational, more, uh, more willing to use violence, more um, interested in defeating the opponents, and often a lack of a really of a, a positive vision. It's more, uh, more, negative, uh, more negative model. And there's also, I think, this new model evolving. We can call it that of sometimes called spiritual activism or sacred activism that is, I think, very much needed at our time. And it's coming very strongly, I think, into the uh, public understanding. There was a very powerful example uh, many powerful examples of that with uh, the um, actions at Standing Rock. Many of you know about those. 
You know, and I wanted just to mention one story which I heard about, which is again, the, this was, the, the actions there were, were explicitly guided by the elders. And they said that we will, um, we will carry out all actions through ceremony and prayer, and we will not go on the warpath. Right? And so there were, I just wanted to read one story which I heard from uh, Charles Eisenstein, and I'll read this. In one incident, a group of water protectors went to talk to the sheriff about the water cannons. They were met by police who began to arrest them. One woman, while she was being arrested, began to sing a native prayer song. Soon, all of the group were singing in unison. The police began to look uncomfortable. One of them even started crying. Another, who looked like he might have been native heritage himself, started to take off his helmet, but thought better of it when he saw that none of the other police were doing it. And it's, uh, it's very plausible that this approach uh, has actually made possible the current level of success. That if they were violent and confrontational, there would have been any number of excuses for repression and uh, bringing violence in turn, right? So I think you can see some of, some of this model in many different uh, settings. What I want to do is to talk about, I think, what is really shared by the heart of King's approach and our Dharma practice, and, and then uh, begin to talk about how we bring that approach to the social world. I thought I'd start by, uh, before going into that uh, identification of the, the shared roots, really, the shared principles, shared understanding, I thought I'd play uh, uh, an excerpt from Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail with himself actually reading the letter. It wasn't a speech because he wrote the letter when he was in jail. This was 1963 and there was a uh, campaign to desegregate Birmingham. So I, I wanted to let you hear this. It goes on for about four or five minutes. in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. 
These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? When you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering, as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park and see her developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people, when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you are humiliated day in and day out, by nagging signs reading white and colored. And your first name becomes nigger. Your middle name becomes boy, however old you are. And your last name becomes John. And your wife and mother are never given the respected title, Mrs. When you are hired by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stands, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degrading and degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. You assert that our actions even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never-ceasing devotion to God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation 
and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demands. Thank you, Dr. King. Um, what I find quite remarkable is that there really is a um, very clear shared part of his approach and the approach that we carry out under the rubric of mindfulness and loving kindness and developing wisdom, skillful action. And one could actually speak about it. We could actually speak about it very simply. And I think this goes for Dr. King. It goes for uh, Buddhist practice. It's essentially to bring the wise and kind heart and mind to every situation. That's it. Okay, I could stop here and say, go out and do that. Or continue to do that. But it's, um, the question is really how we do that and how we see what stands in the way. But it's really, it's, again, it's a very radical intention. It's to bring wisdom and kindness to all aspects of ourselves and to all aspects of our lives. It's not saying we just have kindness with people close to us. We just have wisdom in certain things. It's actually saying every sphere of our lives we want to do this. That is uh, one way to talk about the core of Buddhist practice, which, which I like to think about in very ordinary language as being the strong intention to be responsive rather than reactive. And so that begins to point to what our, our work is, that we want to know the ways in which reactivity manifests in our experience. So the, the Buddhist approach to bringing wisdom and kindness, the kind heart to every situation, starts by identifying the um, issue as reactivity. That's my, as you know, that's my way of translating dukkha, usually translated as suffering, but it's this way that we actually have resistance and reaction to the present moment. And we do that in two main ways. We grab hold of things we think we like, and we push away compulsively what we don't like. So a large amount of our practice necessarily is about studying how reactivity manifests in our own minds and hearts. We watch that. We, as I sometimes like to say, we become uh, experts on our own patterns of reactivity. And we combine that with developing positive qualities like mindfulness, loving kindness, and so forth. So that's really kind of a dual track. You know, we, we basically look at the bad news and we cultivate the good news, so to speak. You know, the Tibetan teacher Trungpa Rinpoche says self-knowledge is 70% bad news. You know, I don't know if he got the percentage right, but there's something like that. We, we actually, you know, I, when I started meditation, I was pretty much interested in understanding and bliss. And the promotional literature did not talk about become an expert in your own patterns of reactivity. 
You know, we probably don't even have that anything close to that in the literature at Spirit Rock, right? We say, come, develop mindfulness, the kind heart. But, but, the, but we want to really see what stands in the way of our clear awareness, of our kind hearts, of our ability to see clearly. So we study that reactivity. We study the patterns of our conditioning. We, that's one of the reasons we need ways of training, because we need to be able to see that. If we are running around distracted, we're not going to be able to notice. We don't have the steadiness of mind to actually see what's going on, necessarily. So we need to develop steadiness of mind. We need to develop that sense of calm so we can actually look carefully and see what's there. And we see our habits. We see our tendencies to react. We see our tendencies to blame or judge. And we also, at the same time, again, cultivate the positive qualities. We start to spend more time with a steady mind, with a mind that's clearly seeing, even if it's something difficult. We often say mindfulness of anger is not angry. Mindfulness of reactivity is not reactive. So this is, this is really the heart of our training. And you know that I like to point to uh, one of the clearest expressions of this in the teaching of the two arrows, which I uh, often talk about. And the teaching of the two arrows, if you remember, came from when the Buddha was talking with a group of practitioners, and he asked them, everyone experiences the unpleasant. What differentiates a practitioner from a non-practitioner? And his answer was, we all have at times unpleasant experiences, and we um, may have sometimes difficult sensations in the body, difficult emotions, difficult uh, interpersonal experiences, difficult social experiences, sometimes we're not treated fairly, and so forth. And he he talked about that as uh, being like we were shot by an arrow. And he calls this the first arrow. This is the arrow of the unpleasant experiences being present. And he says, in that, everyone is shot by the first arrow at times. We're all shot by the first arrow. So there's no difference between the practitioner and the non-practitioner in that. But what he says is the difference is that the uh, non-practitioner, which I I always like to say includes us when we're not practicing, (laughs) just to be clear, The non-practitioner will tend, because of the presence of the first arrow, will tend to react and shoot a second arrow at oneself and others. When I have unpleasant sensations in the body, I may react, tense up. A large amount of actual pain that we feel may be the reaction to the pain rather than the original stimulus. We know this much more clearly with emotions and thoughts. Something difficult happens, it's unpleasant, and I create a storyline and I have anger and blaming and etc. for the next three days for something that took one minute to occur. Right? And that's shooting the second arrow. Or we do that uh, socially, I have received mean words from another person, I bring mean words to that person. or at the level of uh, groups or even countries, we have received violence, we respond with violence. 
Those are all examples of shooting the second arrow. And so the Buddha says that the one way to talk about the core of our practice is to learn not to shoot the second arrow. Easier said than done, right? And what I'm pointing to is that this is actually the heart of the Buddha's teaching on you know, particularly the wisdom teachings. And it's the same, more or less the same as the message from Dr. King. You can see that when you think of nonviolence as we have received harm, we have received pain, we will not pass it on. And yet we will meet that injustice with uh, strong determination. Do you see how this teaching that we have from the Buddha is very, very similar to the teachings on nonviolence? We have received the first arrow. In this case, something that happened socially, we will not shoot the second arrow. This, I think, is the shared heart of the approaches. Now, so I'll say a little bit more about that. You know, King's version is more based in uh, Christian theology and Gandhian nonviolence, and which shares a similar root. The Gandhian nonviolence shares a very similar root with the Buddhist teaching. So I'll say a little bit more about this. So we, in our practice, we want to study how we shoot the second arrow. And we want to be able, at times, to be present with the unpleasant without immediately reacting. So a big part of our practice is learning how to be, at times, with unpleasant body sensations, emotions, thoughts, and notice the tendency to react. Notice the tendency to shoot the second arrow. So there's a particular uh, direction of our practice to really look at when there's a strong sense of pleasant or unpleasant. And notice any tendencies to react when those are present, either grabbing hold of the pleasant or pushing away the unpleasant. This, in many ways, is right at the heart of our practice. And so we, we learn how to do that individually in this training environment Very simplified situation. We learn how to watch the mind and say, oh, I'm something uh, difficult happened yesterday and I'm going over it a lot. Oh, I'm shooting the second arrow with that difficult thing that happened yesterday. Let me just watch how I do that. That's a big part of our practice. We do that. That's why um, you know, I want to encourage you to be with unpleasant experiences when they're workable and manageable. Stay with them, study them. It's right at the center of our practice. And we also uh, bring this into our loving-kindness practice. The loving-kindness practice is another version of this, what I'm calling the shared heart between Dharma practice, Buddhist practice on the one hand, and and King's work on the other. Because it's essentially with loving-kindness or metta, there's a very strong intention to bring the kind heart and goodwill to every situation. Not just the ones where people are nice to us. right? And so again, we need to train in a few different ways. We train partly by strengthening that kind heart with loving kindness practice. And we can do that a lot. We can really strengthen that, develop that quality. We start where it's easier. 
We start actually where it's easiest. We develop the kind heart where it flows really easily and we get it stronger. And then gradually, we bring it into difficult situations. When we teach the metta retreat, which we're actually teaching right now, some of you know there's a sequence of training where you start where the loving kindness flows most easily. And then at near the end, we have a seven-day retreat. On the fifth day, we bring the loving kindness to a so-called difficult person. But we disappoint many people at those retreat by saying, don't go to the most difficult person. Choose a moderately difficult person and then try to bring kindness to that person after having developed it for five days. That's still hard. Right? But you could, can you see how the aspiration is to develop kindness in every situation? This is not, this is not a modest intention. You see how deep this goes if you follow it? Very challenging, right? How do you bring that sense of a kind heart to, to all situations? Well, you start with where it flows more easily. And so we to work with a loving kindness practice. And to me, sometimes when I reflect on this, it's really amazing that this is an option that's been clarified for human life. Isn't that pretty amazing? That there's an option that one can really try to live from the kind heart and from wisdom all the time and really work to uh, develop the mind and heart to, in a sense, work through what stands in the way. Isn't that amazing that this has existed for thousands of years? From the Buddha, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. With a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. He doesn't say just the people around you or just the people who actually are acting well, just the people who are not messing up. You know. So Again, a very radical claim. I think this is identical or very close to the same starting point and the same basic approach that we find with Dr. King. It's an intention to bring that kindness, in his language, bring that kindness and love and the quest for justice into every moment of experience with all people, including with opponents. You know, that same sense of love. So partly, uh, Dr. King following Gandhi sees that violence only leads to further violence. In other words, violence is caught in a cycle of reactivity. Violence and reactivity are cyclical. That's why we sometimes use the word samsara in Buddhist language, which refers to the circle by which we're caught. And in the Buddha's teachings that he came to on the night of his awakening, it's on the teaching of dependent origination, which we've sometimes studied here, is understood as a circle. That the that confusion and delusion and being caught has a circular nature. It's self-replicating almost, self-reinforcing. You know, we're, we're in a circle of our own confusion. Not entirely our own fault, though. You know, it comes from many sources. And so he says that what one needs to do is very much like what we do with Buddhist practice. We essentially need to break that circle. We have to intervene so the circle of greed, hatred, delusion doesn't continue. 
In his language, it could be the circle of violence or the circle of um, hatred and so forth. And so he says, in terms of action, the means must be as pure as the end. Very much against the idea that a good end justifies, as it were, a bad means. That one has to intervene and bring in, in Buddhist language we would say mindfulness, loving kindness, wisdom. In King's language, one has to bring in love. And so he, in many ways, can be understood as trying to bring love to the public sphere. The commentator uh, Cornell West says that uh, justice is the public face of love. And so he says one must follow a consistent principle of non-injury. One must refuse to inflict injury on another. And again, very much like in the Buddhist understanding, at the core of this is a sense that, that this makes sense because we are essentially good. So it's, a, it's really an understanding that unskillful actions, negative actions, do not represent our deeper nature. King says, there is within human nature an amazing potential for goodness. And so you can see he's um, holding that. And again, we have very similar sense with Buddhist practice. You know, sometimes in later traditions it's said that every being has Buddha nature. In the teachings of the Buddha, there's a sense that every being has what's sometimes called a brightly shining mind and heart that sometimes is beneath the surface, sometimes not known, but that even someone with very unskillful actions, when you go deeper, has the qualities of shining and loving kindness and wisdom inherently there. This is hard. We like to form enemies, don't we? Who we think don't have good qualities. And yet, so again, this is a, this is a radical approach that we have, I think, with both the Buddha and, and Dr. King. This is from Dr. King. I say to you, I have decided to stick to love. I know that love is ultimately the only answer to the problems of humanity. I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And he often humorously distinguished uh, love from liking people. Some of you maybe have heard him talk about that, where he, he says, uh, says, Jesus said, love your enemies. I'm happy he didn't say like your enemies, because there are some people I find it pretty difficult to like. Liking is an affectionate emotion, and I can't like anybody who would bomb my home. I can't like anybody who would exploit me. I can't like anybody who would trample over me with injustices. I can't like them. I can't like anybody who threatens to kill me day in and day out. Uh, but Jesus reminds us that love is greater than liking. Love is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill towards all human beings. And it's a force that he would want to call on 
to be with difficult situations. So again, it, there's a sense that one can bring this quality of wisdom, kindness, and love to difficult situations. And that, in fact, it's the only way to cut through that cycle. Again, you find something very similar with the Buddha. You find him saying, hatred is never ended by hatred. Hatred is only ended by non-hatred, sometimes translated as love or, or loving kindness. One never can cut through those circles by using the old, the old tools. And so he says, one seeks to defeat the unjust system rather than the individuals. So you understand, he understands injustice more as something that's institutional and structural and systematic rather than being about people. So there are these remarkable times when he has actual empathy for people who seem to be on the other side. You know, very remarkable, very remarkable to see that. He talked at length about how um, the, he was particularly talking about people in the South, but he talked about how white people's whole personalities are distorted by segregation and racism. He, he talked about the souls of white people being scarred, being deeply, deeply scarred. You know, particularly the, the people that he was coming up against. He said that to really defeat racism was for the bodies of black folks and the souls of white folks. Can you feel that quality of love and empathy? He said that the whole task, the aim of it, was to was for the benefit of black bodies at risk and white souls at risk. Right? And so often he would talk about how the patterns of life in, he was talking about the South, but I think we can generalize it to the whole country, actually were distorting the lives of people who seemed to be on the higher end. And he was particularly cognizant of the poorer whites, the poorer white people who, who he said, um, let me find a quote here. He talked about how his, some of his white jailers in Birmingham, how they had uh, a self-destructive pride in their whiteness. And when actuality, when actually, materially, they were just as bad off as black people. You know? And yet there was this divide and conquer strategy so there's a sense of interconnection and a sense of, of um, empathy for the opponent. You know, we can practice that by developing empathy and kindness for someone with whom we have a slight disagreement, right? Do you know how hard that is? How hard is it for someone, just someone who you know very well at work or could possibly a family member, and they have a different view or they've done something you don't like? And how hard is it to have empathy and a sense of kindness or love, right? So that's, that's where the, the practice comes in. And so we had a deep sense of interrelationship and interconnection. You know, there's a, there's a very similar sense of uh, the 
uh, wisdom dimension there that we find with the Buddha, emphasizing interrelationship, interdependence, and in a sense, going beyond very narrow identities and having that sense of, of commonality. I'll just finish with one last uh, set of comments, which is that what was very significant that King did, really following in many ways Gandhi, who was in many ways following Henry David Thoreau. <laughs> so there's this strange, strange pattern of causality where Henry David Thoreau in New England, you know, in Walden, decides to develop civil disobedience, what, in 1845 against the, uh, what, the invasion of Mexico, or what's now Mexico. And... Uh, Gandhi hears about this at some point, you know, whatever, uh, 50 years later, and uh, starts developing nonviolence in, at first in South Africa. And then in his studies in the 1940s and 50s, Dr. King learns about Gandhi. And so it, there's this strange trajectory where it develops in New England, goes to South Africa, and then to India, and then comes back to uh, the South, right? And then gets uh, broadened. And so he said that it was really the, the genius of Gandhi, again, inspired by Thoreau, but was really to take the uh, Indian tradition of ahimsa, which we often translate as nonviolence, and the idea of karma yoga, which was a, an idea that you come to the sacred through your work in the world. Our main model nowadays for that is something like the idea of selfless service grounded in spiritual practice, right? which a lot of people find very attractive. And so Gandhi was steeped in that, steeped in those twin principles of uh, nonviolence, ahimsa, but it was primarily at the time directed towards one's face-to-face -face interactions. One would develop, you know, much as we do with our Buddhist ethics, we take a, a, one of our core ethical precepts is non-harming. So Gandhi somehow took that principle of non-harming along with this emphasis on, on one's work in the world being a sacred path, and he brought it to the social sphere. That's his tremendous innovation, to bring it to the struggle for the independence of India. And King became aware of this. This is what he said. Prior to reading Gandhi, I had concluded that the ethics of Jesus, the love ethic, were only effective in individual relationships. The turn-the-other-cheek philosophy and the love-your-enemies philosophy were only valid, I felt, when individuals were in conflict with other individuals. When racial groups and nations were in conflict, a more realistic approach seemed necessary. But after reading Gandhi, I saw how utterly mistaken I was. Gandhi was probably the first person in history to lift the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals to a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. And so this is, this is the shift that King experiences when he's still quite young, probably in his 20s, and he's, he's studying Gandhi. And he finds a way, he believes, to bring the love ethic and the wisdom of interdependence into a way of dealing with larger social issues. 
And I, th I think in this way, it's extremely complementary for our Buddhist practice. Our Buddhist practice primarily developed in monastic settings. And actually, for monks and nuns, the worst thing they could do, they were told, was to engage in politics, which at that time meant the affairs of kings and queens. They're saying, whatever you do, stay away from that. <laughs> you know? And it was actually the teachings were understood to have a, a community aspect. And there were sometimes teachings that were given to people with some social power. But the practices were primarily for development of inner practices and to some extent community practice, like speech practice and so forth. And so you can see that what King and Gandhi's innovation does is it starts to bring our sense of practice to a wider sphere where we don't receive that uh, gift explicitly from the tradition, because, especially because of the monastic basis and the way that uh, the political situations of those times were certainly not democratic. They were based on rulers. There wasn't a place for a citizen like we have now. So can you start to see how bringing all of this together offers a tremendous potential for our times? You know, to actually have a continuity from the most uh, subtle dimension of inner experience to our relationships with others and our families at work and our communities, but then all the way to the larger social sphere, how we can actually have a kind of a seamless quality of our practice, where it can really be connected with all of these and follow the same principles. And can you see how learning from Dr. King makes that possible, the social sphere, and can really inform what we do in the other spheres? Does it make some sense? And so there's this uh, tremendous... There's this tremendous opportunity. So let me see if I can finish with a quote or two. Talk more about this next time. Keen wanted to bring this quality of love and wisdom, these qualities of love and wisdom, into these difficult issues of injustice. In keeping that, what I'm calling the shared heart between Buddhist practice and, I would say, Christian or Gandhian nonviolence, and connecting them. And so he said that the actual, the, the goal that he keeps in mind is actually reconciliation with one's opponents. Understanding of one's opponents, ultimately empathy and reconciliation but that comes with very, very strong action. Again, non, I'll talk more about this next time. Nonviolence non is not about just going to a large gathering and sing, singing Kumbaya. I don't know if, if King knew that song. But it's actually, when you study his life, and I'll talk more about this next time, it's actually being very, very focused on action, but keeping the sense of wisdom and keeping the sense of love always there. So again, so that one's life can be seamless. And he also talked about the interaction of the inner work that we do with the outer work. Again, I'll talk more about this. You can't, do, you can't bring 
wisdom and love to one's life and to some of these larger spheres unless you're also doing the inner work. It doesn't work. Then it just becomes ideas, right? You have to have that unity. And so he said, the end of what, all of what we do is reconciliation. Really, it's coming to that shared heart of, of all. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. That's what, that's what his aspiration was for. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. So, amazing that such a being lived. He had imperfections, but amazing that such a being lived. It's amazing that such a path is possible. And amazing that we have a community where we can support each other because it's not easy, is it? It's not easy to work out a disagreement with someone you love very much. But this is, this is the path, this is the direction. I think what our times are calling for is for a lot of us to become stronger in all of this. Maybe I'll end with one of the findings of research on nonviolence is that when you have 3.5% of the population actively engaged in nonviolence, historically, success has always occurred. When you have 3.5% of the population actively engaged in nonviolence, this is what research shows, you know, looking at 30, 50 examples of nonviolence, there is always success. So the question is, Are we part of that 3.5%? And does that call you? Yeah. Let me invite any reflections or questions or comments. We have a microphone. I've always wondered how mm -hmm. killing his own people mm -hmm. and how by being nonviolent you could do that. It's yeah. just unbelievable to think that yeah, it could yeah. be, it could happen. But Yeah. Yeah, so some, often when we... Uh, look at nonviolence, our minds sometimes go to the most extreme situations, right, and ask, is this really possible there? And so I think it's important to know uh, that, uh, um, I think there's an answer there, which I'll get to, but it's also important to recognize that one's coming up with these extreme examples to see how it might be possible, and that we also want to not have that uh, deflect from looking at where it actually is very uh, understandable, because we could, we could say that it could be uh, just as hard to 
bring these uh, qualities to a very, very difficult relationship. Might be, might be just as hard, and, and it's helpful to look practically at, at what, what we know. Historically, uh, nonviolence has toppled many dictators. You know, that's true, and, and there was, you know, there were, uh, you know, you think of uh, Marcos in the Philippines, you think of uh, uh, what happened in, um, some, some of what happened in the Ukraine. Again, not, not always full and glorious results, but there have been dictators that have been toppled in large part with nonviolence. Nonviolence played a very important role in South Africa. You know. And it's not so well known, but there was significant nonviolence resistance to uh, the Nazis, which actually succeeded in a number of cases. Particularly one of the best, uh, the best examples is what happened in Denmark and some of the, uh, uh, particularly Denmark, but to some extent also in some of the other Scandinavian countries. But in, in Denmark, there was nonviolent resistance which saved most of the Jewish people of Denmark and there was not retribution by the Nazis, strangely. Yeah. So, and there was also nonviolence resistance in the heart of Berlin by a German woman that succeeded, believe it or not, protesting at, in 1943-44 at the headquarters of the Gestapo against their, uh, against their husbands who had been imprisoned as being half Jewish. Yeah. So, uh, and so there are a lot of success stories. I, I, I don't have a, a deep understanding of Syria, but my understanding is that there were a lot of nonviolent alternatives and uh, they were not supported, uh, certainly by Western powers. And there were ways in which the whole situation moved more and more in a cycle of violence. So there were some of the same things have happened in uh, in uh, Israel, you know, and in relation to some of the major Palestinian voices of nonviolence were kicked out of Israel. It leaves a vacuum. So, yeah. thank you. It's, it's, it's good to ask those questions, but uh, always remember that they're extreme examples. Yeah. Please. Okay. Other questions of clarification? Or, yeah, please. I need... I'm noticing that the, these times are inspiring um, me to do things that are more difficult. Yeah. Um, and to that end, on the 21st, I'm leading a choir of 15 women to welcome and bless an anti-choice march yeah. that's preceding the women's protest march uh, yeah. in San Francisco with songs of welcome and blessing and signs that say... We may not agree with you, your beliefs, yeah. but we uphold your right to your beliefs. Yeah. And I'm finding this is an assignment that um, I've been very resistant to, but um, my guidance has insisted that I do it. Um, yeah. And I'll be interested to see what happens. That's great. Yeah, we can, we can hear back. So, again, that's... Um, I think it's important, it's important to remember that I, I, as I've said a few times, this is a very audacious, ambitious intention, right? To bring wisdom and love to all situations, right? You know, and, and uh, it goes against a lot of our conditioning. And it's also very clear that the training 
this is also relevant for the last question, the training is to start where situations are simplified and we build these qualities of mindfulness, loving kindness, wisdom from situations where they're not so challenging and that we eventually can bring these uh, capacities to more difficult situations, but we have to, we have, to have plenty of ways to be with really uh, simplified situations and easier situations for training. So the training is crucial. This is, and the training leads us to be able to then stretch at times. And so we can actually see in all of, you know, in the next week, this, this would be my uh, invitation, if you so choose, to have homework. Would be to keep practicing mindfulness. I would say also practice loving kindness, if you know that practice. And keep practicing them, and then try to be aware of where you're reactive. Study your reactivity. See if there's some situations where you're conscious that you're being stretched. Okay? Could be interpersonally, could be in terms of your own mind, right? Our own minds can be difficult. Um, and see where you're being stretched and then invite the practice to go to that place where you're being stretched, much like you're doing with bringing a sense of kindness and um, some empathy, even where there's profound disagreement, right? right? Profound disagreement. And it's not losing the common humanity. You know, one, one expression of empathy that I like is asking the question, what is it like to be you? And we, can, and we can keep asking that question. So that would be the homework, right? Mindfulness, loving kindness, study reactivity, see a few places where you're stretched, where it's hard to be mindful, it's hard to bring kindness, it's hard to be empathic, meaning it's hard to... Um, really be interested in the other person's experience because it's whatever, different or different views are there. Yeah. Time for one more? Or it could be a comment. Please, yeah. Up front. Unless I'm not understanding what you said, I think when you said 3.5% of the population actively involved in nonviolence results in success, right. I thought that was extremely hopeful. That kind yeah. of just lifted me yeah. and think, whoa, yeah. maybe we can really do this. That's right. Yeah. It's, again, that is, that is a uh, historical finding, or that's a, a, a research finding from looking at many, many examples of nonviolent action. And um, it's very hopeful, I think. It, it means that, uh, because all sorts of things happen when you have that number of people engaged. So whether it's, you know, whether it's about climate disruption or about some other events, um, there's a real importance about, about that kind of mobilizing. It's quite a remarkable result, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, or re remarkable finding. That, that has historically been the case. Yeah, so, so I think it is important. Uh, 
Maybe, maybe I'll close with this. This is from Dr. King. We must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. <laughs> so, how many would like to uh, do at least some degree of homework for, next, uh, for the next week? How many are interested in that? Okay, take notes, report back. Everyone will get credit. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so we'll, we'll end with the dedication of merit, the traditional ending, which is to take the fruits of our morning, the whatever understanding or opening of minds and hearts, clear intentions there's been, let us take that and offer it to ourselves, offer it to everyone in this room, and then offer it beyond the boundaries of this hall to all beings. The horizon is that we offer the benefits of our practice to all beings. Thank you very much for your attention and for your practice. And I look forward to hearing what happened in the next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.